Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBenfi podcast. Andrew, Nabil, and I are your co-hosts today, and we are joined by Frank Ambrosio. I know Frank from CDC, but he is currently a contractor with Theogen. I caught up with Frank at a conference recently, where we learned that he is going to be a sort of traveling bioinformatician. Welcome, Frank. Thanks, Lee. I want to get into your nomadic lifestyle, but first, to give everyone a sense of who you are, let's get to know what your non-nomadic life has been like. What all were you doing at CDC and where were you living in an apartment? Um, so just to help us get into that, I'll kick it off with the first question here. How long had you been at CDC and what was your focus at CDC? So uh, my story at the CDC is interesting. I was a member of several different laboratories while I was there. The first lab that I worked in at the main campus of the CDC was the Division of Tuberculosis Elimination under Jamie Posey, where I first got exposed to the way bioinformatics was done at uh, an extremely large scale. And um, I was still working in the laboratory. Uh, I was a lab technician slash microbiologist, and I was learning how to sequence on the nanopore device that had just started to uh, hit the scene. The more I performed sequencing, the more I got interested in analyzing my own data. And initially, I had been handing off my data to the bioinformaticians and looking at the results with them after the fact, but I got really interested in how they were doing their analyses. And they actually encouraged me to start doing it myself. And I did. I found an old Linux computer that was hanging around the division and um you know, got all the permissions and everything to start using it. And eventually I was encouraged to start studying this uh, academically. And turns out we have an excellent bioinformatics program just up the street at Georgia Tech. You know, without uh, Jamie Posey's approval, I wouldn't have gotten to uh, do that master's program while working at the CDC. So big thanks to Jamie Posey for making that possible. But then, yeah, while I was working at the CDC, uh, after the Division of Tuberculosis Elimination, I worked in the Biodefense Research and Development Laboratory under David Sue, who really helped me develop my microbiology skills in the BSL-2. After that, I worked in the STREP lab with uh, Sophie Chuchua and Leslie McGee and Ben Metcalf, and um, they do a ton of sequencing. I mean, tens of thousands of isolates a year. So it was a little bit different to go from a lab that does a very small number of uh, sequencing projects with extremely rapid turnaround time and extremely uh, high consequences for every sequencing run to this more surveillance-oriented production-level laboratory. So uh, it was an awesome experience. I learned a lot from them as well. Uh, I also got to use the skills that David helped me develop in the um, 
microbiology realm, uh, laying e-strips, doing MIC testing on, on various strains of strep. And from there, I uh, got my FTE, working in the Division of HIV AIDS Prevention under Bill Switzer and Els Campbell. And um, that was actually a, a job I had been trying to get for a long time, working at the CDC. What does FTE mean for our international uh, and non-professional people listening? That's, that's a great question, Lee. FTE means full-time employee. Uh, what it really means is you have become a direct hire to the CDC. You're no longer a contractor. And um, yeah, getting your FTE is, is it was a huge honor for me. Uh, it, it shows confidence in you as a scientist. It was a huge honor. And it was with the lab that I had been trying to work with for a while. This is the lab that develops Microbe Trace, which is a tool I had become enamored with watching presentations on the big screen uh, with everyone at the CDC campus. Awesome. That, that gives us a really good idea of who you are, where you've come from, and which is amazing. Thanks, um, and, and maybe just like along those lines, I don't think we, we interview um, a lot of early investigators, early researchers. Um, so do you have any tips for aspiring bioinformaticians? Definitely. When, when trying to get a job at the CDC, uh, I, would, I would encourage early career scientists to focus on applying to the contracting agencies. There are a ton of contracting agencies that work at the CDC, and often people don't realize that a job through one of them is actually a job at the CDC because of the rules about what they can put in the job description and everything. Um, so I would absolutely encourage uh, early career scientists to take that route just to get as many applications in as possible in the areas uh, that you're interested in working. And oftentimes groups will be entirely composed of contractors. So if you want to work for a very specific uh, group on a specific pathogen, you might need to work for one of these contracting agencies. So don't focus on getting that FTE right out of the door. It will come with time. I kind of think of it like a martial arts belt promotion. You know, you, you don't focus on the promotion. You just do the work and eventually you will get the promotion that you want. Any tips for uh, technical uh, aspects of learning bioinformatics and adapting to that field? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. A year ago, I would have said, go and buy yourself a sweet MacBook Pro and get as much RAM and as many CPUs as you could possibly afford and learn the Apple terminal and all the commands and, and shortcuts and focus on that route of development. Today though, after having worked at Theogen, I would strongly recommend familiarizing yourself with a VM. And particularly I would recommend a Google Cloud VM and syncing that up with an IDE like VS Code. And there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, I have had the unfortunate experience of my battery dying while being in the middle of editing a, a script and lost some of the work that I was working on. Yep, uh, that happened to me during grad school. And it wasn't terrible, but that one experience was so traumatic that I started seeking out solutions to make sure that never happens again, just automatic saving and, and stuff like that. When you're working on a VM in VS Code, everything is so seamless to push commits to GitHub that it's rare that I ever lose more. I mean, I, I haven't lost anything so far since taking that route. 
So touch I would wood, strongly, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <touch> wood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I I would strongly recommend starting from that route because relearning your your development environment, I you know everyone has to do it a couple of times as they progress in their development career as you switch from one IDE to another, from one text editor to another. I mean, that I guess that's not true. Some of us are still working in Vim, but by and large, you will <laughs> leave, leave smiling. <laughs> by and large, you will eventually adopt uh, an IDE. If, if you choose to go that way, I would recommend VS Code and the Google Cloud VM as a nice, easy starting point. Yeah, so how did you actually get into Tiagen? Ah, so this brings me back to my, my FTE position at the CDC. So when I was working in the STREP lab, I was deployed to the International Task Force of the COVID response. And there I, I learned a ton about international bioinformatics. Uh, I was charged with developing the International Sequencing Capacity Dashboard. So I got to see you know, where are these sequencers being uh, distributed and uh, what does the, the landscape of sequencing capacity look like around the world. And part of what I realized is there's there's probably um, there's probably a lot of sequencing that people could be doing that they're not doing because they're focused on one pathogen and and that will grow with time naturally, of course. But that's that's where the seed was kind of planted that I wanted to uh, participate in the international bioinformatics community. Uh, from there, I got my FTE with the Division of HIV AIDS Prevention, and I was almost immediately deployed to a local task force called the TOAST team. And the TOAST team uh, was headed up by Lee Katz at the time, and it was a fantastic honor to finally get to work with Lee Katz. Um, Lee actually presented during my first week at Georgia Tech during grad school. So from there on out, I kind of had my eye on working with Lee in some way, shape, or form, and uh, it finally happened. And then subsequently, two days later, he rolled off the task force and we had a new team lead, as, as is the, uh, the nature of the uh, pandemic response task forces. But um, I, I can check that off my bucket list of bioinformatics collaborations. Then uh, being on the TOAST team, we provided technical assistance to state laboratories around the country. And a lot of these state laboratories had started using this platform called Terra.bio that's developed by the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Immediately, I saw how this platform could be the graphical user interface for every bioinformatics pipeline in the open source bioinformatics community. I uh, started having meetings with Kevin and Curtis from Theogen, and Curtis really uh, opened my eyes to the power of Docker containers and how they could be used to string together tools that don't normally play nice together. And uh, seeing how everything could be orchestrated on Terra with a click button interface, that really appealed to me as someone coming from the wet lab who had to go through the process of learning to do my own bioinformatics on the command line and had to install 15 different versions of the same tool to try and get all my dependencies right. Seeing how things could be deployed so easily to Terra.bio and how these long, complex pipelines made of various different tools could be accessed with a click button interface through a web tool, that really, really appealed to me. 
And um, I saw that Theogen was the group developing all the workflows for public health on Terra.bio. And I became interested in, in doing exactly that. And um, after a few conversations, I decided that was the move. And um, yeah, it they were they were looking for people. I was looking to uh, do exactly what they were doing. So it just worked out perfectly. So um, I want to change it, the topic just a little bit because you are extremely interesting as as an early researcher. You've gone through a lot of stuff. In response to what you said, it, it has been an honor to work with you also, even though our time was short. One of the really interesting things is that you want to kind of take your show on the road. And and is it okay for me to say couch surf? You want to <laughs> you want you want to you want to do Airbnb and and work remotely when a when many of us are 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 basically career bioinformaticians and we have a stable home and we want to and and you could have this stable home and everything and you do you mm -hmm. and can can I just like kind of paint your apartment a little bit for the audio like you have a nice three panel painting on on your wall a, a map of the world beautiful apartment with fireplace and and a, and a nice couch and everything like why would you want to leave all this behind so yeah that's a that's a great question Lee um one of the major sectors of growth we saw during the pandemic was actually uh, home remodeling because so many people decided if I'm going to be here all the time I'm going to make my home office amazing and I kind of fell along those same lines I now have you know two more screens than I had at the beginning of the the lockdowns and um, you know I have multiple laptops and everything here uh, I could do this job from here no problem but uh the reason I want to travel, the reason I want to go and, and do, as you said, couch surfing, Airbnb surfing uh, around the world is the, the connections you make in the public health community are absolutely uh, incredible. This, this brotherhood of people who are, who are interested in you know, promoting public health around the world. I haven't met a single person in public health who doesn't want to help everyone in that community. It's, it's a really um, loving and accepting and warm and powerful community. And um, yeah, getting to go meet people in person is a very special experience. And I just want to do as much of that as I possibly can. Recently, I got to take a trip to meet <clears throat> some collaborators in Mozambique that we had been working with for seven weeks prior to the trip learning genomic characterization, genomic epidemiology, and getting to meet them in person was, you know, in, in one week, we bonded more than we had over Zoom in seven weeks. So, you know, just getting those opportunities to have a cup of coffee with someone, sit and have lunch with someone and talk to them about what their career interests are. You don't get that if all of your meetings are focused training sessions over Zoom. So I... um yeah, I want I want to go meet everyone in person who I've been working with from around the world for the past three years. So give us like a little bit of a before and after that. While you're while you're stationed in Atlanta, you've had a routine over here. How do you think? How's your routine now? And how's it going to change? You can have a routine when you're living in one spot. Having a routine when you're on the road is you have much shorter periods of regular activities, let's say. So uh, while I was in Mozambique, I had a routine, but that routine lasted 10 days. Um, when I'm in New York, I have a routine, but that routine lasts 
just for the two weeks I was there. So for me, it's it's less about setting up this permanent established routine and more about finding a framework. Like what things do I need to do and how can I fit them all in? And I kind of see my my calendar, my Google calendar as this, like I've stopped writing to-do lists and I've started just using my calendar and trying to fit in everything that I need uh, throughout the day, whether it be, you know, going outside for a little bit or um, making food, making sure I, I take care of myself, but then also all the, the work-related responsibilities and socialization and stuff like that. So I, I really try to focus on using my calendar and planning for the week, planning for the month, planning for the quarter, and that makes it a lot easier to not have that routine. I don't need to worry about what I'm doing that day because my calendar will tell me. So are you planning to uh, like live in a van or something as you travel across the US or are you planning to, you know, kind of live it up in Airbnbs and kind of cool locations around the world? So the van life movement has absolutely appealed to me uh, a little bit. I actually know of one individual who is currently doing that very successfully. They just have a couple of hotspots and they, they live the van life. That would actually limit me to uh, geographic regions that are connected by land. <laughs> so it, you know, it 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 does appeal to me, but I would like my my area of travel to be a little bit broader than than just the Americas. So the Airbnb option, you know, most people hear Airbnb and they think giant house on the ocean, and uh, there are a lot of options within Airbnb and. Uh, Many of them are more affordable and, um, you know, you really don't need much if, if you're going to be out and about working in cafes and, and uh, elsewhere. And that's really the approach that I've taken. So this is a, this is a good time to tell my, my story of my first travel uh, while working with Theogen. Um, it was actually during my first week of working for Theogen that I had to travel to New York um, it was my first time traveling while working without taking any time off. We had not been issued Theogen laptops yet. So I had my my work laptop that I had bought myself. It was a MacBook Pro. Um, and I was, I was very nervous because I had never made this work before. Uh, I thought that I had all the equipment. I had all my adapters. I had a mouse that I was bringing with me, a keyboard, uh, and... I packed up all my stuff and I stayed in a one room Airbnb. So it was just a bedroom. And uh, I set up my laptop and everything when I got there and I was able to hold meetings. You know, I blurred my background and made sure and everything went fine. There was nothing to worry about. Um, Initially, just hooking up to the Wi-Fi took about two minutes. Uh, As you know, when you get to a new place, you have to get that Wi-Fi password as soon as possible. But after that, everything went smoothly. Uh, we also had a Theogen hotspot uh, on our on our work phone. So if anything went wrong with the Wi-Fi, I had redundancy. I also have my uh, personal phone, which has a hotspot. Um, one of the things that I discuss all the time with Kevin is redundancy. Like, where do you need to have redundancy? And the first one is with your internet connection. You can't just rely on one internet connection. You have to make sure you have some alternative method of hopping back on the call should everything go down. Uh, The next thing is your audio equipment. Everyone who's ever been on a Zoom call knows the struggle of audio equipment, and you want to have multiple options. I personally have 
um, my headphones that I'm wearing right now. I have uh, a pair of earbuds and I have a microphone. So three different methods. And also I think it's nice to mix it up. You know, your ears can take a lot of abuse if you're just using the same headset every single day. So mixing it up definitely helps with the ergonomics of being on eight hours of Zoom calls a day. Um, so yeah, while, while I was in New York, I worked from this Airbnb. I also worked from the pizza place right down the street, which had their own Wi-Fi network. I worked from the coffee place down the street the other way that had its own Wi-Fi network. Um, and you know, there, when I went to visit friends, if I had to send an email, if I had to do something, I could connect to their Wi-Fi network. Um, so having, having the, the hotspots and having, uh, a little bit of confidence in the internet connectivity around the region that you're in, uh, that, that helps. So I'm sure it, uh, it can be a bit lonely when you're traveling solo. So how do you avoid feeling disconnected and, uh, integrate properly with, uh, your company? And this, this was one of the major issues that I had at the beginning of the lockdowns. So I live alone. I, I don't have a pet. I don't have a dog or a cat. And living alone during those lockdowns was pretty rough. The opportunity to travel, to me, it really led to more connections than I would have had uh, just staying home. That being said, I developed some strategies that are still in place to this day. And first of all, you have to set times to talk to people nowadays. Everyone is so busy that if you want to have a recurring meeting with one of your friends, you should put it on your calendar. Like it, it might seem weird to be putting, you know, meeting with my buddy Kevin on your work calendar, but you know, it it really helps to keep that regular checkpoint and just have those those intentional check-ins with the people that you care about. Um, additionally, if you get the opportunity to go visit your family, just do it. It, you know, there's, there's so few opportunities to do that nowadays. And I, I love going up to New York and, and seeing my family that, uh, is still living there. And I got to do that. Actually, um, my cousin got married recently and I went up there for the first time in a, a few years, I got to see people. And, um, it's, it's one of those things that, you, you don't think about it until you're around those people again. And they're saying, wow, we haven't seen each other in three years. And you, you want to let that happen as, as uh, often as possible. Go see your family. Um, make sure that you're seeing the people who love you and see, see them in person if you can. You know, make sure you're, you're timing your boosters and everything appropriately so that you're doing it safe. Take all the precautions so that you're not getting people sick. But if you can go see your family, do it. Um, much of what you're saying, Frank, I've heard other people who were uh, remote working from before the pandemic, you know, the OGs, they would they would more or less say what what you've been saying. It's interesting during the pandemic time that we've we've lost the the water cooler moments in work, in life. And it does seem now I think we've forgotten how to do it. And you have to do this deliberate scheduling of of times with people to really ensure that you get the, you know, in quotes, casual conversations. They have to be formal in the diary now uh, because, yeah, people are coming and going all the time. Yeah. So related to that, I will often just put a uh, meeting with one of my coworkers or, or friends. Uh, that's just, you know, my name slash their name. and it's completely open. There's no agenda. It's 
what are your concerns? What are you working on right now? What are you doing? We haven't talked. We haven't had that water cooler moment. And I, you know, I remember from my time at CDC, walking through the hallways and seeing, you know, all of my friends who work there. And now, since I don't have that, I, I am kind of aggressive with my setting of meetings with people. If, you know, if you can't make a meeting, all of my friends know, like, just go ahead and um, reschedule it or reject that meeting. It's totally fine. I will not be offended. But I feel like it's important to make that clear to them uh, when you start doing this, because people see a meeting pop up on your calendar. And, you know, unless you've explained this to them, they might be expecting, oh, is this going to be a working meeting? Do I need to have an agenda ready for this meeting? So I like to just tell everyone, hey, I'm going to put meetings on your calendar just to chat for 15 minutes about, you know, are there any concerns? Is there anything I need to know that's not in, in the normal scope of our work discussions? And I think that helps a lot. So I'm curious now, trying to read between the lines of what we've been discussing so far. Mm-hmm. Let me place a hypothetical. If we didn't have this catastrophe of the COVID-19 pandemic, do you feel you would be making this change that you're making now? the digital nomad, you would you think you'd be uh, trying to implement it now? Yeah, I, I see uh, why it appears that the, the pandemic was sort of a catalyst for me wanting to embark on these journeys. But really, I, I've been focused on having a locationally independent occupation for a long time. Uh, it's always appealed to me the idea of being able to grab my laptop and go work in a cafe from everywhere, anywhere. And one of the most important things I I remember from early on, I had a professor in undergrad who had described some time that they went and worked in uh, Latin America and they traveled around for a bit. And I was like, how did you work from six different countries in in one year? How is that even possible? And they explained, you know, work visas, you have to come back to the States every so often and maintain your citizenship. And they gave me this rundown. I had never even heard of that lifestyle before. And this professor was very successful. They started several businesses along the way, and it just really appealed to me. So that's probably the first moment that I started considering the digital nomad lifestyle. But then I was in the laboratory and I thought, you know, I love working in the laboratory. I love thinking inside the test tube and, and, you know, working with my hands at the at the wet bench, working with a pipette and working with all these cool new sequencers and sequencing technologies. And um, but then we got a um, an automated liquid handler. And this was the writing on the wall. I, I saw the automated liquid handler and I was like, I am never going to be good as good at this as this thing. Um, I can only work so many hours in the day before my hand falls off. And this thing can go all day and all night. And that that's Part of the impetus for learning bioinformatics as well was, you know, where where can I be more useful than I am in the lab? If this sequencer or this liquid handler can pipette more than me and faster than me, uh, where where can I be of use? And obviously at the experimental design phase, that was important, but also the analysis. So yeah, once I started working behind the laptop more, I started really thinking, okay, I might be able to do this. I might be able to, uh, you know, achieve the dream of locational independence. And uh, 
once once I saw the goal on the horizon, I pursued it aggressively. I got the bioinformatics master's from Georgia Tech. And from there, it was just a matter of finding the right position, which I did at Theogen. So if it's not, if it, what you're saying makes sense, it was something that was coming from before. Do you feel like there is a generational shift? Because for me, I feel like I'm in the middle. I got the worst of both sides. People who were older, professors were able to dig into a place and get tenure and be fine and then younger folks I mean I don't know <laughs> I don't like younger folks I see on the on you know my nieces and nephews and so on they they take to this they take this yeah I'm working here for a year I'm working here for two years I'm moving around I'm doing whatever I'm having fun and I'm like I can't do either of it this is this is ridiculous yeah, Do you I, feel with your with your peer group that this with it with people in your cohort say as you were stepping through, they also are more uh, uh, sort of easy able to cope this this transient sort of work pattern? Yeah, absolutely. I totally see that pattern. Um, so I was born in 1990. I was part of the first generation to have a cell phone uh, in middle school, and. The, the idea of connectedness for me. I, I remember the days when you had to ride your bike down the street to see your friends. And then I remember getting my cell phone. And I remember thinking like, wow, I can talk to all of my friends all the time, nonstop from anywhere I want from now on. And now, you know, text messages used to cost like 10 cents a piece. So my mom didn't think that. But uh, at the time, I thought that. And then uh, with, you know, AOL Instant Messenger uh, came around and I, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a laptop at my home when I was first getting exposed to AOL Instant Messenger. And I thought, again, I am connected to everyone I want to be connected to all the time. And um, yeah, I kind of grew up with that mentality. And uh, I guess, yeah, as as I learned more and more about these digital nomadic lifestyles, it there was nothing that um, there was nothing that scared me about giving up the home base. Um, I, I really took to it. And I see it in uh, some of my, my family members who have purchased a house and they're building a life in their community. And they say, you know, how can you, how can you travel around like that? And what about your friends? Don't you miss your friends? And who do you go out with when you're on the road like this? And, you know, I, I make friends all over the world. I, I talk to my friends who I've known since middle school and grade school on the phone all the time. So I think the the social dynamics have really shifted in, in favor of just moving around and staying connected. So are you planning to uh, give up your apartment or, or sell it or what? Yeah, so the, the eventual plan would be to sell off um, all the stuff I don't need, put some of my stuff in a small storage unit uh, here in Atlanta, maybe use one of those um, mobile storage units like pods where you can have the whole storage unit shipped to another location and uh, just go from Airbnb to Airbnb around the world. Now, I got to tell you, an Airbnb in Lima, Peru costs more than my rent does here in Decatur, Georgia. Uh, so it it's actually um, cost effective to stay in these Airbnbs rather than having an apartment. So my plan is um, I will keep this apartment through next summer. And at that point, it's going to be all traveling all the time. I, I should point this out. You might actually have win, win, uh, win this once, Lee. I, 
always pronounced a decatur. <laughs> Is that wrong? <laughs> yeah, we uh, it's decatur. Oh my god! It. I've been pronounced. Uh, you you win, Lee. For once, I've said it wrong. Um, I because win. There's a, there's a, there's a Salmonella Saravac called uh, Decada uh, <laughs> that I see from time to time. So you say Dec. I kept saying Decada. We we have a a locality. We have a Saravar here who who discovered I that one. I don't know who. I don't know if it, if there's another um, Decada, but there the you know it's probably a common city name. But there is a Saravar called Decada. We we have a few different decaders in the U.S. and I and I don't know if anyone mispronounces it. I definitely hear the mispronunciations over um, I don't know, like over tech support calls or whatever. That's hilarious. This is a tangent, but oh my god, when I'm not gonna give away if and when I can't give you so it, much but... um I can't give you so much grief about mispronouncing Norwich. <laughs> <laughs> I mispronounce it every episode now. It's great. Uh. <laughs> I'm not going to give away if and when you're visiting, but like if and when you visit, um, you're reminding me. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a field day with you guys now. I'm gonna try to bring up all the <laughs> names. This is gonna be great. No, but that sounds um, that sounds really well formed as uh, what you're saying, Frank. In terms of a lifestyle, like it it makes it does make sense when you when you put all of those pieces together. It does make sense. It is like it is um, it is sustainable and it is sort of sensible in a way. At the beginning, you sort of mentioned a lot of people of, uh, you know, in terms of education and mentoring, and you would have been doing this all on site with within CDC positions. Now, how would that be possible in a digital nomad space? I mean, you touched on catching up with people over the phone and, and virtually, but to me, that seems to be possibly one of the weaknesses that you're not embedded with people for a long time to, to get exposed to, to some great experience yeah and you know this this was actually a concern of mine um i was very fortunate to be mentored by the people i was mentored by at the cdc and at every level these are people who i all still look up to as mentors and and would love to be able to see on a regular basis um i think one of one of the tactics that I've come up with for maintaining relationships is find a project to work on with someone that you want to maintain a relationship with. And, and um, for me, forming relationships is much easier if we have a, a common goal and uh, something, something to work on every week and, and milestones to achieve. And uh, one of the uh, most recent collaborations I've worked on has been uh, with David Hess uh, from the Nevada State Public Health Lab. Um, working on a candida outbreak in that region. And, you know, uh, David and I, we live, what, like 2,500 miles away. Uh, it really would be Im impractical for us to see each other in person on a regular basis. But we have a, a checkpoint every week where we meet and we discuss uh, the project that we're working on. And I, I got to tell you, it has been one of the most rewarding mentor-mentee relationships that I've ever had. Um, so I, I, you know, I haven't met David in person yet. Uh, we're actually going to meet for the first time in person at ASM NGS. So, uh, this is, this is the new way is you can form these relationships digitally. Uh, you can maintain them by working on a project, working towards a, a common goal, and then, uh, you can meet each other at the conferences, uh, which, you know, 
thank goodness for these conferences starting back up. Uh, I think that's, you know, going to be really helpful for facilitating the maintenance of these relationships long term. Well, you're speaking to the choir here, Frank, actually, I think um, most of our interactions for the podcast with Lee over in the States is is totally online. And we only we only met up what at MM the other month, really. <laughs> That's exactly as you're saying. So, yeah, no, totally agree with that. I had one final question before we wrap up, and mm-hmm. this is sort of um, throwing it open to everybody. What you're sort of talking about is this more agency model where you're moving around, you're working freelance, or I can see things like, say, with Theogen or with other companies or core bioinformatics services where you're sort of a gun for hire and you're kept on retainer within the group, but you're not actually embedded in the organization in a specific university or anything like that i'm wondering how everyone feels about this is this what we're going towards as a working model for the field that we're sort of this gun for hire working remote if needed tapping in and out um one day you're working on one project one week you're working on another project and switching around is that what we're moving towards in bioinformatics yeah i i i think that you know rather than looking at it as you know, I'm just one person who you can hire to help with bioinformatics, I would be much less effective without the Theogen team behind me. And I think that really um, illustrates the model a little bit better is you have this team of bioinformatics scientists, genomic epidemiologists, and then project coordinators who can very quickly come up to speed on a project and immediately uh, start helping start contributing. And we see this over and over again with our state public health lab partners. Uh, We can very rapidly uh, uh, start being effective with a project uh, when we start a new collaboration with a uh, state public health laboratory. And we kind of take the approach of a practitioner-led research and development model. So um, anything that they're working on, we gear our entire development trajectory towards the needs of our collaborators. And typically what ends up happening is the needs of one collaborator meet the unknown, unforeseen needs of another collaborator. So we are, we are developing in many di- different directions, but every direction that we um, develop programs helps multiple different laboratories. And I think that, you know, that kind of breaks the old model of having one bioinformatics scientist per group who develops all of their analyses and, and has to do all of the bioinformatics in a, in a bubble. And now it's, I'm working with genomic epidemiologists during the development uh, path. So it doesn't get to the end and I've developed this nice bioinformatics pipeline that um, the results of which I have to then interpret for the genomic epidemiologists. By collaborating through the entire uh, development period, we, we make something that works for everyone. I mean the the agency for hire. I feel like um, this it's it's almost like it's a kind of continuation of what we've been doing. Unfortunately, Frank mentioned the FTE thing at the beginning of this. Um, for better or worse, we hire a bunch of contractors or we hire um, fellows or whatever who are not actually employees of CDC, and that's to help us maintain flexibility and everything. And and maybe this is just a continuation. I, I kind of see a bright future where the internet and all these technologies are kind of helping us find more and more 
intelligent people to, to help us on our missions. And, and these people like Frank bid for a contract um, at CDC or, or they can bid for a contract somewhere else. And, and I think it's kind of when, when it maintains flexibility, like we've wanted for a long time while maintaining the expertise. I think it's, I think it's probably a good thing. Yeah, I agree with that, Lee. I think, um, you know, I draw a lot of lessons from my time on the Toast team, seeing how, you know, you can you can have these collaborations between um, state public health entities that would have not interacted if not for one uh, central group bringing them together, like the Toast team was, and and like we do at Theogen, uh, in in different ways. Um, the the staff B community has been amazing at this, and I think that uh, you know we should we should definitely acknowledge that they they've been doing this the longest. They were the the OGs of the uh, state collaboration uh, movement, but I you know there's so much uh, potential to that movement, just bringing people together for these collaborations. So. What next? You know, in, in five years' time, if we come back and talk to you, where do you expect to be? You know, is it going to be that you are leading your own company or, you know, you'll be running Theogen or, you know, what is your feeling on that? So I think Theogen is doing things the right way. I have no intentions of leaving Theogen. Um, my, my role in five years will probably shift uh, to a more um, supervisory management role. Uh, but for now, I'm just focused on making the connections around the world with public health groups that are doing good work, performing bioinformatics, and you know want to learn the the cloud-based technologies and the Docker-based technologies that we use at Theogen, and um, you know we'll take it from there. Anything I could do to to help the global bioinformatics community, um, I'll be doing that in five years. We'd like to keep ha hammering the hard questions with you, but I think we have to wrap it up there. Uh, can we check in with you later after you've had some time with the nomadic lifestyle, especially with Andrew's question, where do you see yourself like in five years? I, I am very curious where this goes to long-term. Yeah, absolutely, Lee. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. And, uh, you know, anytime you want to have me back on, like, like I discussed earlier, whether I'm in Lima, Peru, or I'm in Sydney, Australia, you can, you know, put, put, a, put an hour on my calendar and I'd be happy to chat. Awesome. Well, thanks for clearing up this amazing lifestyle. Um, thank you to all the listeners for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.